All right, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see you guys. Welcome to our in-person and online session of Torah studies. So we are going to study the Torah portion, uh, uh, the first few sections of, the, of this week's Torah portion. Torah portion this week is Devarim. We begin a brand new book, brand new book of the Torah. This is book number five. So you can open up for those of you in person. We are opening up the Chumash to page 1,120, so 1120, 1121. The, it's Chumash Devarim. Um, the book in English is known as Deuteronomy. Why is it known as Deuteronomy? I have no idea. No, Deuteronomy, my understanding is, it means repetition of the law, which really is what Devarim is known as, Mishnah Torah. It's a repetition. Well, it's not a repetition, but a lot of it is repeated. A lot of what, what we, a lot of the mitzvot that we've had prior, and a lot of the, the stories are repeated, and there's a reason why. So let me first, hey Sandrine, welcome. Let me first um, give you kind of an overview of the book. This is very important. I remember the first time when I was a kid when I studied this book, and I couldn't understand. Oh, Sandrine, this is for you. So you can sit wherever. Um, so I, I remember I had difficulty contextualizing and understanding what was this book actually all about? Like, what's going on here? So I feel like with the following int introduction, this book will make perfect sense. You ready? Here we go. Here's my introduction. This entire fifth book of Torah takes place in the span of 37 days. It's funny because the first book of the Torah takes place over about 2,000 years. But this book of Torah takes the place, takes, takes up 37 days. Which 37 days? From Rosh Chodesh, Shvat, the first day of the month of Shvat, until the seventh day of Adar, when Moses passes away. The last 37 days of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, the last 37 days of the life of Moses, is captured in this fifth book of the Torah. What happens in these 37 days? It's very simple. Moses gathered the people day in and day out, and he spoke to them about things that he thought they needed to hear. He said, this is what you need to remember when you go into the land. This is what you have to do. This is what you shouldn't do. Don't forget, you remember 40 years ago the mistakes we made. Don't make them again. Imagine a loving parent, right, who knows that their time is up, who knows that in just, what's 37 days? What is that? Five weeks? Yeah. Five? Yeah, just about five weeks. Imagine somebody, right? God forbid, somebody knows that they have five, five weeks left to live. And, and they love, they love their family. And every day they want to give guidance, give advice, last, last words of advice. This is the book of Devarim. This is the book of Deuteronomy. And so, yes, he sometimes he chastises them. Sometimes he tells them, you guys made mistakes. Don't make it again. Sometimes he encourages them. Sometimes he's a little foreboding and he says, you know what? If you do make a mistake, it's not going to end well. Sometimes it's, there's love. Sometimes there's a little bit of harshness. But either way, it's his final message to his people, the people that he loves and the people that love him. So we're going to begin. I'm going to pull up the, the text online. Give me a second. Let me get that ready so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, Devarim, a.k.a. Deuteronomy, chapter number 1, verse 1. Okay, so let's, let us begin. I'm going to read from the Chumash that I have in front of me. It's going to be very similar to the version that you guys have online. But I'm just going to use this one that we have in front of us, which is the Gunnik edition, as you have it, as you can see it right here on the screen, page 1120, 1121, or online on the online version. Okay, verse number one. These are the words, and Rashi adds the parentheses in this translation we have here in the book are Rashi's editions. These are the words of subtle rebuke, which Moshe spoke, Moses spoke to all the Jewish people in the plains of Moab on the east bank of the Jordan. Basically, they were, they were situated, the Jewish people were situated at the edge, at the border of the land of Israel, on the eastern side in the plains of Moab. That's where they had ended up after 40 years of wandering, 40 years of travel. They were knocking on the doorstep. So the Torah tells us, this is what Moshe said, Moses said to the people, in that location, 
shortly before his death. He mentioned, I'm reading this, uh, our translation here in the, in the Chumash, the printed Chumash, which has Rashi's commentary intertwined. He mentioned the places where they rebelled against God, quote, in the wilderness, in the plains of Moab, at the Sea of Reeds, in the wilderness of Paran, between Tophel and Lavan, at Chatzerot and at Dizahav. So he mentions a number of places where the Jewish people had acted in a way that wasn't so kosher, perhaps, wasn't so, uh, wasn't so healthy. So to, to go through the places, number one, plains of Moab, well, that's where they sinned recently with the daughters of, uh, of Midian. Um, the Sea of Reeds, there were also complaints over there. You know, they, at the Sea of Reeds, remember when the Egyptians cornered them against the sea? Remember what the, how the Jews reacted? Yeah? What did the Jews say? <laughs> Let's go back to Egypt. We're about to drown on the, dr uh, about to drown on the sea. I mean, I can relate if I'm, if I'm faced against the sea with no snorkel gear. Yeah, it could be problematic. But they had a lack of faith. In the wilderness of Paran, between Tophel and Lavan, Chatzeret, Izahav, all these places were places where either they complained of lack of water, or they complained of lack of food, or they complained of lack of meat, or they complained about the manna, or they had to, Dizahav, that last one, Dizahav, I love that one. Dizahav is a reference. You know what Zahav means in Hebrew? What does Zahav mean? Gold, right? Ray, I can read your lips. I saw you say gold, even if you're not mute, unmuted. Um, zahav is gold. So dizahav means too much gold. What happened when they had too much gold? Guys, help me out here. What, what sin happened with gold? The golden calf. So the Torah allegedly, I just want to explain verse number one. It's really powerful. The Torah allegedly is telling us where Moses delivered his final address to the Jewish people, in which location he spoke from. But if you look at all the locations, there's different places. There's this, the, 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 um, by the Jordan, Plains of Moab, Sea of Reeds, Chatzero, Dizahav, all these are different places. Which is why Rashi says, and the commentaries say, the Torah is not telling us a location. The Torah is not telling us where he spoke from. The Torah is telling us that as Moses spoke to them, the Torah alludes to the fact that he was alluding to them, to the people, about the places where they had fallen, where they had made mistakes, which teaches us a major lesson in life. When it comes to criticism, there's two ways to criticize. One way is to really rip into the other and say, oh, you did this, you did that, and call them out on it and like shine the bright lights so that there's no escaping, you know, like there's nowhere to hide. The other way is, and this would be the more loving way is, you give a hint, right? <laughs> it's, I'm thinking about, about husbands and wives. It's like the typical cliche, again, it doesn't have to be in our experience, but the typical, typical cliche about the, how, how does the husband know when to take out the garbage? When the wife says, is this smell in here, right? So the hint, sometimes the hint is enough when you're dealing with someone who's wise, right? Hopefully the husbands are wise and wives are, but ho so when you're dealing with somebody who's wise, the Talmud says, Dai chakima a chacham, a wise person, it's enough to give a hint. You don't have to spell it out. So Moses is rebuking the Jewish people and it's alluded to in the first verse that he did it to them in a way that was subtle. He spoke subtly, it's just referenced by the name. Remember what happened there? All right, don't do that again. Remember what happened there? Don't do that again. Without necessarily spelling out all of the, all of the details. And of course, the takeaway, as I'm trying to tell, as I'm trying to mention, is that when it comes to rebuke, let's not try to destroy the other. Let's not try to break the other. People typically don't grow and don't improve when we like really attack. If we're, if we're um, emphasizing um, construct, constructive criticism, that's one thing. But if it's about like destroying criticism, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't usually work. All right, I hope that makes sense. Let's take a look at, at the second verse. Verse number two. So from Choreb, Choreb, or Horeb in the, in the English here on the, on, on the online version, where the Torah was given, Horeb or Choreb is another, is another word that's used for Mount Sinai. So from there to Kadesh Barnea, where the spies were sent out by way of Mount Seir, normally takes 11 days. But you took just three days because God was speeding your entry into the land, which means that after the Jews got the Torah, they were supposed to go straight into the land of Israel. 
This was 40 years prior to this conversation. They got out of Egypt. The sea split. They did a little travel. They counted the Omer. Remember, right? They counted the Omer. They counted 49 days. Till day 50 was Sinai. They got the Ten Commandments at Sinai. And then they were supposed to go straight to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, um, they went to Kadesh Barnea, which, is a, which was an 11-day journey, but it really took only three days. And the whole point was to quickly enter the land of Israel. But at that point was the sin of the spies. And that was another subtle rebuke here about that mistake. Okay, so in the Chumash, let's turn the page to 1123. Um, I love how there is a... I don't know how often this is. This is in the Chumash, in our printed version again. Top of 1123, there's literally an entire parenthesis, entire line here that says, however, although they were supposed to go into Israel immediately after Sinai, the Jewish people for, forfeited this blessing and were delayed in the desert for 40 years, as will now be explained. So now Moses continues the narrative, reminding the people 40 years later what happened 40 years prior. So, okay, so verse 3, it happened that in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first of the month, Moshe spoke to the children of Israel shortly before his passing. So what, what year is this? I'm sorry. This is not 40 years ago. The Torah is now bringing us back into the present where this is taking place, which is at the end of the 40 years of, of traveling. The 11th month is the month of Shvat. First of the month means Rosh Chodesh Shvat. I told you the last 37 days of his life from the first of Shvat until the seventh of Adar. How did I know that? Literally verse 3 right here says it. Moses began his final lecture, final speech to the Jewish people, a 37-day-long speech on Rosh Chodesh Shvat, the first of the month of Shvat, which is month number 11. And that is, and, and, and the year was 2488 from creation, which is year 40 after the Exodus. So this is what he said. Moses spoke to the children of Israel shortly before his passing and rebuked them about everything that God had commanded him on their behalf. Moshe waited to rebuke them until he had proven his military might by defeating the powerful Sichon, king of the Amorites, who lived in the powerful city of Cheshbon, and the powerful O, king of Bashan, who lived in the powerful city of Ashteros, Karnaim, in the kingdom of Edrei. So what we have here is a um, resume builder in verse number four. Basically, yeah, Moses is speaking. Hey, Matt, welcome. Good to see you. Matt, we're on page 1123. And no one wants to get too close to me, I think. I'm kidding. You are totally welcome. 11.23. So, um, so Moses, according to Rashi at least, is kind of um, stating, or the Torah at least, is stating his resume, credentials. How, can, how is Moses, why should they listen to Moses? Never mind his spiritual caliber. Never mind his prophecy, never mind his humility, never mind the miracles that he facilitated on God's behalf, but he was also a mighty leader in the fact that he led the Jews to victory against Sichon and Og, various uh, superpowers of the time that the Jews had been victorious over in, in, in the recent past, like very recently, in the last months before this, uh, this narrative. And so the Torah says that helps his, um, his, uh, his authority, if you will, um, and his credentials. Let's continue with verse number 5. Okay, again, 11.23, verse 5, or online, also just verse 5. So on the east bank of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moshe began, Moses began to explain the Torah, translating it into 70 languages, and this is what he said. Before we get to what he said, which is going to be the big quote, verse 6. Verse 6 begins Moses' words, which will go on almost for the entire book of, of Deuteronomy. This is literally like a transcript of what he said. But before we get there, yeah? Why into those many languages? Good, good, good. I, it's exactly what I wanted to mention. So I will tell you that in the, in the direct translation, which we have online, it says on that side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses commenced and explained this law. But Rashi says, what does it mean explained? Be'er et Torah zot lemar. He explained this law, he explained this Torah. So Rashi explains, which we have in the parentheses in our edition, the printed edition, he explained it by translating it to 70 languages. Now, what are the 70 languages? So if you recall, remember when the, the, uh, the generation of the tower 
Remember they were building a tower against God? After the flood story, they, yes, the Tower of Babel, exactly. And so God, they were united to build a tower, something against God. So God divided the world into 70 nations. He gave them 70 languages. He confused it. Babel means kind of like a mixture. He mixed everyone up. And so when somebody, somebody asked for a hammer, so when somebody asked for, um, I don't know, one tool, somebody hit him over the head with a hammer because there was chaos. At least that's how we learned it when we were kids, how like Babel, everything was confused. Languages were confused. Nations were confused, etc. So what's, what's the upshot? The upshot is that the world is divided into 70 primary nations and then the Jewish people. This is a number, by the way, that you find very frequently in, in Jewish literature, Talmudic literature, philosophical literature, Kabbalistic literature, the idea of 70. 70 being the number that represents the nations and then, and then the Jewish people. So like, for example, the Talmud would say, will say that the Jews are like a lone sheep amidst 70 wolves. Why 70? Why not 100? Why not a dozen? Why 70? 70 nations, right? Or for example, we had a few weeks ago on Sukkot, the Torah tells us that there's an offering the first seven days of Sukkot, before Shemini Atzeret, the first seven days, you bring bulls each and every day as an offering in the, in the, in the temple or the Mishkan. You start off with 13 bulls, and then you, you decrease each day, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. If you count up all those bulls, they equal 70. Why 70? It says it's an offering either on behalf of the nations or to diminish the antagonism of the nations, to diminish the negative energy of the nations. So we start off with 13 and diminish each day to diminish their negative energy. Either way, we, 70 is associated with the nations. So what, what, is, what is Moses doing here? He's translating the Torah into 70 nations of the 70 primary nations of the world. Now, but let's ask the question, why? If he's talking to the Jewish people who presumably know Hebrew, right? This is before Yiddish, right? So the Jews knew Hebrew, <laughs> before Shtisel. So they know, they know, um, they know Hebrew. They got, they've been communicating in a language the whole time. So why is Moses, right now, shortly before his passing, translating the Torah into 70 languages? First of all, you could ask, how did he even do that? How did he know all the languages? And where are you writing it down? How big, like what, published, like a publishing house? Like what's going on here? The logistics, I don't know that I can tell you the logistics. But the quest, as far as the question, why would he translate in 70 languages? So the Rebbe asks this question. And the Rebbe has a beautiful explanation. And he says, because the role of Torah is not to remain isolated at a certain time or place. It's meant to impact really the whole world. Not that the goal is to make everyone Jewish, but, but Jewish values, divine values, are meant to impress upon the entire world. And thus, it needs to be translated into all languages, let alone the fact that Jews, over the course of our history, have been in pretty much every nation with every language, right? I mean, we've been in Spain and Europe and Africa and Asia and, you know, South America, you name it, and France, right? Sandrine just came back from France last week. Yesterday. Yesterday, I'm sorry, not even last week. It feels like yesterday. It feels like last week. Yeah. So, so, so by Moses translating the Torah into the 70 languages, it gives an authenticity. It, you see, if we translated the Torah on our own, ah, uh, who says we got it? Who says we were allowed to? Who says, right? But if Moses is initiating it, the same guy, I'm just using the word guy colloquially, right? The same guy who gave us the Torah in the original language also opened up the path of translation. So even if we don't have the original translations, which would be very cool if we had that, even if we don't have the original translations, the fact that he opened up that path means that it's an authentic path of study. You with me on that? Does that make sense? I, always, I thought that it was supposed to, I understand that it was disseminated throughout the whole world, but I thought the original intent was to keep it isolated just among the Jews, and that the Greeks translated the Greek and then it got out, and you know, that was by force, not by power. You are, you are referring to a very, very important piece of Jewish history, where the, one of the Roman emperors, I think, called in the Jewish sages and forced them to translate the Torah, into Greek, I think. Yeah, yeah. He was either, either Greek or Roman, but 
or, or la- yeah, yeah, and um, and they translated the Torah and they all made certain adjustments. All of the rabbis were in different rooms. They all made certain adjustments. Like instead of literally translating in the beginning, created God. They said God created in the beginning, like Bereshit, Bara Elohim in the Hebrew. It's it's in the beginning, Bereshit in the beginning, Bara created Elohim God. You put the noun sometimes after the verb in Hebrew. They just to make sure that no one would think that in the, in the beginning, or or this beginning created God, right? But so, who's beginning? <laughs> and how come we don't? Why aren't we worshiping the beginning? Anyway, so they they, they modified certain certain um, verses and they did it synchronized. And the Talmud says that that was a day of mourning because it opened up the Torah into foreign hands, etc. And it led to all sorts of negativity and forced debates throughout history, etc. So you're correct. But I think what the Rebbe is saying is not necessarily um, uh, the same thing. In other words, it's, this is opening it up to, from our perspective, to be more of a global influence. Not, again, not necessarily that everyone should be studying Torah all five books of Moses, word for word, in a translation, etc. But I'm not saying not either, but not necessarily is that the intention, but the intention is that Torah should have an impact broader than a very specific time and space. And as the exiles will, you know, because everything is foretold, as the exiles will kind of unfold, that that impact will be in those spaces as well, and not kind of disjointed from that. That that was translated, it might have been one of the things that happened. Although, no, I think, um, may, we have to look that up. Um, it might have been associated with one of the sad days. Yeah. It was considered a day of tragedy that day, yeah. Um, what was it called? The Septuagint? Is that, that the right? Septuagint? It's one of those words. Yeah, something like that. It's a Greek, it's a, it's a, a Greek, uh, I think there were 70, I think there were 70 rabbis that translated it. The number 70 again. Anyway, but Moses, we see here, Rashi says that Moses uh, translated the Torah. By the way, I will tell you, the Rebbe was always advocating that Torah be translated into, into modern languages. With the Ka'a Publication Society, which is, um, I had the fortune of, of working with them for a while and still doing some work with them of translating Torah into different languages, translating Hasidic philosophy, translating, you know, works of Jewish inspiration to make it accessible in whatever language, wherever, wherever Jews may be found, whatever countries, should be accessible. So you have Sidurim and Chumashim in English, Hebrew English, Hebrew Russian, Hebrew French, Hebrew Spanish, Hebrew English, I said Hebrew English, whatever, maybe English English, <laughs> Australian English. Anyway, all right, good. So that is a little bit about the translation. Let's continue to verse number six. Okay, so here we go. So now Moses begins. God, our God, spoke to us at spoke to us in Chorev, uh, or Horeb, which is Sinai, saying, "You have been living too much time by this mountain. You're hanging out too much at Mount Sinai. Redirect yourselves toward Arad and Charma and travel until you come to the Amorite Mountain." and through its neighboring territories, Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, through the forested plain on the mountain of the king, through the lowlands of the south, through Gaza and Ashkelon, in the Chumash, and we're turning the, um, the, the page, in the south, and Caesarea by the seashore, conquering the land of the Canaanites, and the Lebanon, all the way until the great river, the Euphrates River. Okay. Basically, God says, start moving. And I need to get, well, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll finish another verse, and then I want to come back to this. Yeah, Moshe's talking. Moshe's, well, but Moshe's saying that God said. Moshe's saying, God spoke to us at Mount Sinai, saying, God. you see the beginning of verse 6, is Moses is speaking, but he's saying, 40 years ago, God told us at Mount Sinai to start, not around this mountain, move. And in other words, God gave us the call to go Where? Israel. Verse number eight. See, this is again Moses speaking to the people quoting God. See that I have already put the land into your hands before you. All you have to do is come and take possession of the land which God swore to Avram, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov that he would give the land to them and their descendants after them. Nobody will even oppose you. Essentially, 40 years prior, 
God, Moses says, 40 years ago, God had told us, stop loitering around Mount Sinai, enough already. It was a great experience, fine, time to move on, time to go to the land of Israel, and you have nothing to worry about. I want to mention a few things, a few points of commentary on this. Number one, this, um, um, this statement of Rav Lachem Sheves Bahar Hazeh, it's enough that you're do- you've dwelt enough, you've, you've You've spent too much time at this mountain, at Mount Sinai. You know, Mount Sinai represents Torah. And one might say, well, hold on, there's, nothing, there's never too much time that you could spend around Torah. Torah is always like, you know, especially here in Town Jewish Academy, we're all about Torah. Nonetheless, Hashem said, at some point you have to move into action, into implementation. It's great to study. It's great to learn. It's great to be inspired. But at some point... You have to start, you go out there and implement. Go to Israel. And what do you do in Israel? You're going to transform a, a land of Canaan into a holy land. You're going to make a land into the holy land. And this is true wherever we go. This is true where we go, when we travel, when we work, when we shop, when we carpool, wherever we go, it's all about, hopefully, transformation. So there's the inspiration that we get when we study, and then there's the implementation when we go out there. And so God's message is, and the message is for us as well, it may seem more comfortable sometimes to stay in shul and to pray all day and to study Torah all day, and that is actually very nice. However, we also have to, at some point, make the world, you know, affect or influence the world and make a difference. I will tell you that even now, so it, there are different stages in life. So you typically, when a person's younger, so they study in yeshiva, and that's like more of a full-time gig. And then they get older. you got to get a job. You know, you're married. You get a job and, and, and do that whole thing. But the Rebbe instituted in the Chabad Yeshivas that every Friday you close the books, which is a big deal, by the way, to close the book of Torah study. You close the books and you go out to the streets. Guerrilla, no, not guerrilla, street Judaism. You ever seen the Chabad guys on the street corner saying, hey, you Jewish, you wrapped filling? Hey, you're Jewish, you want a uh, candle lighting kid? That was the Rebbe's inspiration one day a week. Now, if that was every day and there was never learning, okay, that might be a, pro- a, a challenge because you got you to learn. But you're learning all week, right? You take a few hours on a Friday, Arab Shabbat, to hit the streets and, and do mitzvahs with people. That's a way in which we implement. And I'll tell you, it's when you, when you have the opportunity to really share it with someone else and really make a difference in someone's life and say, how are you doing? How is your week? You know, tell, tell me what's going on and, and have that, that, those interactions. It actually deepens all of the Torah that we study. All of the Torah that we study is like inspiration, but this is the implementation. The Talmud says, which is greater, study to, to study Torah or to do a mitzvah? Which is greater, Talmud or, Talmud or Misa? Study or action? And the Talmud answers in such a Jewish way, which is greater? Study is greater. Why? Because it leads to action. <laughs> Unbelievable. Still can't make a choice, right? Which is better, study or action? Study because it leads to action. Which means that what's the primary? Ultimately, action. The action is the main thing, but of course you can't do unless you know, so you got to study, but it's still all about implementation. And so God says, again, this is Moses, Moshe, recall, reminiscing about 40 years prior when we were at Mount Sinai, he says, God told us to move. The message is a contemporary one as well. We need to study. We need to be inspired. But we also need to implement. That's also laid out in Perkei your wisdom. Your yes. Your Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, Richard is pointing out, it says in Perkei Ethics of Our Fathers, that one should, one whose wisdom exceeds the... The deed, it's not going to last. Right. If, if your wisdom exceeds your action, it's not sustainable. It's like a tree, it says, that the branches are very broad and the roots are very shallow, that a wind is going to come and knock it over. If it's too academic, it's good. It's not, it's not good. It has to also be grounded in something real, something tangible. Yeah. All the winds in the world can come and it won't blow you down. Right. If you have strong roots, which is action, 
And the wisdom, okay, you have whatever you have. All the, tree, all the winds in the world cannot knock you over. So that was one thing I wanted to mention. But also, I love verse 8, which we already read, but verse 8 said something beautiful, where God says, essentially, I have given the land to you. I've already set the land before you. I've placed it into your hands. And, and as Rashi points out, again, it's the parentheses here in our printed version, nobody will even oppose you. Sometimes, and this is a message in life, sometimes um, we have this, this image in our minds of like, you know, fierce opposition and danger and everything. And it's like, is it real or is it imagined? Sometimes it's imagined. Sometimes the victory is already at hand. Sometimes the miracle is ready to unfold, but we're apprehensive and we get in the way of our own destiny. And that's not a good thing. All right, let's continue. Okay, let's continue with verse number nine. Um, okay, Moses continues. Moses says, I said, again, I is Moses. This is, okay, one second. Let me, let me pause here for a moment and, and just reiterate what I'm trying to say here. Well, let me look at the chat. Hold on, what do we have here? Oh, Sarah, okay, nice. Um, now, take a, uh, look at the opening of verse nine where he says, I said to you at that time, I said to you. Who's I? I is Moses. You would never find that in the first four books of the Torah. The Torah is not written in the first person, I. The Torah says that God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to Pharaoh. The Jewish, pe the Jewish people complained to Moses, right? The Torah is always written from a third-party narrator that's telling us what happened, what ha what's happening on the ground. The f this fifth book of Torah is written from the first-party perspective, and it's because it's quoting Moses for most of it. So Moses says, God spoke to me. I spoke to Moses. I said to you, the Jewish people, you said back to me. So there's, uh, there's a lot of I, there's first person language in this book. Okay? All right, let's continue. Let's continue uh, uh, verse 9. I, sa I said to you, Moses is saying to the people, I said to you, I said to the, you, the people at that time, saying only that which I had been told by God, I cannot carry the burden of judging you on my own. For God your God has made you great, you are so great that you are everlasting like the sun, which shines during the day, and like the moon, and the individual stars of the heavens, so that so you would be an awesome responsibility to judge, even if you were few, all the more so that you are many. There's a lot of Rashi intertwined in, the, in, those, in that verse, but essentially, in those few verses, essentially, God, uh, sorry, Moses is saying to the people, that after the Sinai experience, it became very clear that I could not, yeah, yeah, Rashi is integrated into, um, there's, there's more expositions on Rashi in the, in the margins below, but, but the few like, points of Rashi that will help with the translation are actually thrown into the translation itself over here in parentheses. So what, Mo, what, Moses, what Moshe is saying to the people is, 40 years ago it became clear to me that y'all are a full-time job. Right? It's like, it's not easy. Jews are not easy. No, but he's not disparaging. He's saying, because of, your, because of your greatness, because of your numbers, it's just too much, it's too big a responsibility. So, in fact, in the future, verse 11, God, the God of your ancestors, will multiply your number a thousand times. He will bless you as he told you he would when he took Avram or Abram outside his tent and showed him the stars. So, essentially, what Moses is continuing to say is that not only are you great and many, but it's even going to get more great and more many as the years go by. Therefore, we need to make another plan, which takes us to reading number two, which is the reading for today, which is Monday. So typically, not typically, every Torah portion is divided into seven readings, which corresponds to each of the seven days of the week. So Sunday is reading one, Monday is reading two. So on Mondays at this class, what we do is reading, hopefully, reading one and reading two, assuming we can get through it. So let's continue with reading number two, verse number 12. So Moses said, If you argue that I should judge you alone, despite the responsibility and risk of punishment, God has forbidden me, forbidden me from doing so. For how could I bear single-handedly your tactical legal maneuvers in court, the burden of your slander against me, and your disputes with each other? In other words, you guys are a handful. So there's no way that I can alone bear... I, you know, the online translation says, how can I bear your trouble, your burden, and your strife all by myself? Your trouble means the trouble that you cause in court. Your burden means 
the times that you fight against me. And strife is when y'all fight with each other. Either way, I can't do it alone. I literally cannot manage a nation of two million people with one guy. It's not possible. It's absolutely not possible. Now we're going to see what happens. He said, therefore, I, I appointed other judges and other leaders to kind of, you know, like also help out. But I need to point out something really fascinating in the Hebrew. I'm going to highlight it online right here. Verse 12, the first word of verse 12. You can look at it in the um, Hebrew side of our Chumash, 1126. Second line, last word. What is that word in Hebrew? Echa. What is Echa? Echa is how, but Echa is also the first, the opening of the book of Echa. Word Echa. Echa is what we call the book of Lamentations in English. Echa was written by Yirmiyoh Anavi, Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was lamenting about Echa Yashva Badar Ha'ir Alas, Yashva Badar, how the city, how she sits alone. The city that was great is now like a widow. In other words, Jerusalem is now bereft. The Jews were wiped out. The Jews were sent away, exiled with the destruction of the temple. And that was the book that, this is a, uh, a book of, it's called Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah laments, he mourns Jerusalem's destruction. But it begins with the word Echa. This Torah portion, Devarim, is always read on the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, when we read the book of Echa. So just to be very clear here, this Saturday night and Sunday is the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day of the Jewish year, saddest day on the Jewish calendar. It's a day that both temples, both holy temples, hundreds of years apart were destroyed. It's the day that World War I broke out. It's the day that many tragedies befell the Jewish people. The, um, uh, the expulsion from Spain in 1492. You look up the English date, signed by King Ferdinand and Queen, Queen Isabella, the ninth of Av. It's, cra it's crazy how these things happen on the same day. And we read a book, the book of Echa, the book of Lamentations. As, as we mourn, we, we, read it really, we read it Saturday night, the night of Tisha B'Av, and then some of a custom as well to read it the next day. So here is, here's my point. Every year, on the Shabbat before the ninth of Av, we read this, this Torah portion. And in reading number two, it opens with the same word that that book is called Echa. So what's the, there has to be a connection. There has to be a connection. What's the, what's the connection? A tale of two Echas. You ready? Echa of Lamentations is about the destruction of the temple. This Echa is where Moses is lamenting about he can't do it alone. What's the message? When a people look when they put everything on one guy, it'll end in disaster. It'll end in lamentations. The Torah is teaching us, again, but subtly through the, the use of language and everything, or through uh, the fact that this word Echa is here and that word is the book, uh, you know, the, the, the book of Echa, the message is powerful. That we all have to take responsibility for this. When I say this, I mean whatever this is. Neighborhood, community, world, universe, we have to all take responsibility. We can't say, well, someone else has to, well, this is messed up. Someone really needs to fix it. In a society, in a world where everyone's like, yeah, somebody really needs to, to, to step in, that's when things break down, when people don't take responsibility. And so Moses says, I should do everything. <laughs> I should do everything myself? Echa? How could I possibly do it all myself? But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a warning sign. It's a warning sign. A society in which people don't take responsibility devolves into chaos and destruction. We all have to take responsibility. Okay, let's continue. That's a little bit of a, again, a commentary, not a literal commentary, but a bit of a midrashic commentary, so to speak, on this. Let's continue. Verse 13. So what's the solution in the times of Moses? So prepare righteous, wise, and insightful men for yourselves known among your tribes, and I will appoint them as your leaders. Again, Moses is saying 40 years later what he told the people 40 years prior. Again, this is right before his passing. He's saying 40 years ago I noticed there wasn't enough leadership. So I said, choose leaders, etc., etc., etc. Um, 
Okay. See, I have also access to the downstairs. Hold on, give me a second. The downstairs I can open from my phone. I have the button, but not here. But not here. Unbelievable. Okay. Let's continue with verse number 14. You answer me disrespectfully, Rashi points out in that parenthesis, and said, the thing which you have proposed to do is good for us. <laughs> Why is that disrespectful? They agreed with him. Because they, they were too eager. Moses says, I think we need more people. And the people are like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, somebody says, I don't know if I could do it myself. And someone says, yeah, you, you can't really do it. Now you get offended. It's like, wait a second. Hold on. You were supposed to say, no, we love you. And I was like, no, but I really want somebody else. That was the... Right? It's like when you go to a restaurant and someone's like, um, the first person says, I'll cover the bill. And you're like, no, 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 let me do it. And they're like, okay, fine. And you're like, no, <laughs> you were supposed to fight again for it and I was supposed to give it back to you. What are you doing? That's not how this works. Anyway, not saying this from personal experience, just saying what I've heard out there. So what's the point? The point is that... The people were too eager to take the proposal of more people in addition to Moses as leaders. So they said, yes, it's a good thing. We like this idea. We're on board, verse, four, verse 15. So I selected, Moses says, again, recall, reminiscing from what happened 40 years ago. I selected and persuaded wise and well-known men from the leaders of your tribes, and I made them leaders over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, Leaders of tens, that's like a very small bunk. That's like a very good ratio over there. If there's every ten people you have a leader, that's, that's very close contact. And police officers over your tribes. There were spiritual leaders, there were judicial leaders, there were, there were law enforcement leaders. Okay, that is all verse 15. Let's continue with verse 16. On that occasion, says Moses, I instructed your judges saying, listen patiently to your brother's claims, even if you've heard a similar case before. Moses instructs judges in such a beautiful way. Even if you think you've heard this case before, it's a brand new case. I must say, when, when you ask a rabbi, when you ask a rav a question of halacha, if you ever get a quick answer, you know it's probably not accurate because every case is different. The way to answer a halacha question is to say, I need all the details. I need to look it up. I can give you a general perspective, but to specifically address a case, you've got to know the specifics of the case. And even if it's the same case, but the people are different, which makes it a different case. Are you with me on this? Like people ask all the time about medical, you know, medical ethics and halacha. There's no one answer. It's not, never is there one answer. It's not shayach b'mitzi. It can't be because everyone is different. Every single case is different. Um, along those lines, they tell a story about a rav. A rabbi who was once, this was Erev Pesach, the eve of Passover. And somebody comes to the rav and says to the rav, I have a question in halacha, question in Jewish law. Are you allowed, instead of wine, can you use milk for the four cups on Passover? Question, can you use milk instead of wine for the four cups? So the rabbi said, it's a very good question. I would, need to, it's Arab, I would need to do a lot of research on this, but it's right before Passover, so I'll, I'll let you know at some point. But he opens up his drawer. He says, take money and uh, have a good yomtif. He, he gives the person some money. The guy's very thankful. He walks out. There was somebody who was with, with the rabbi in the room. He says, what just happened? Like, That's a weird answer. Like, the, the answer is no, you cannot use milk. So why don't you just, like, you don't need to look that up. That's like, no, you... I mean, you can use grapes instead of wine, or like, but you can't use milk. That's not a thing. So the rabbi said, being a rav is not just knowing the answer to the question. Being a rav is knowing how to answer people. It's not just a, a, a question in a vacuum. It's a, when a person's asking if they can use four cups of milk, what does that mean? They, have no money. they don't have money. But it also means they have no money, not only for wine, but not, not even for meat, right, for the Seder. Because if you're drinking milk for your four cups, that means you don't have brisket either. You don't have chicken. You don't have soup. You don't, right? you don't have any fleshics. You don't have any meat. So he said, the issue is not, the question is not milk, no milk. The question is, what do I do that I have no money for the Seder? So the answer is, here's money. So you have to know how to answer. No, I mean, it's a serious, right? You have to know how to answer 
the person and not the question sometimes. So these are instructions for judges, but also, yeah, it's like, it's like any, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, 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 it's not like people skills. It's, that sounds too like technical. It's, it's like, sensitivity. yeah, sensitivity. Just how, how to, huh? Diplomacy, but it's more like you, like when you're speaking to somebody, to know what they really, like what's really going on. It's not what they say sometimes. It's what's, what's really going on. Like the Rebbe, you see videos of the Rebbe speaking to people, like in rapid fire, the Rebbe always honed in on like what the person was. It doesn't matter what they said. It's like, okay, here's what, you, and you hear it, you're like, oh, that's a really good answer. How did the Rebbe know? You're like, oh, that's. We're taught that in data consulting a lot, that the person's question is not necessarily really what they're trying to answer. They have to suit out from hints in the question. Right. Question, kind of like with, with the with the and the cups of uh, cups of yeah. uh, milk, so yeah. Yeah, right. So in in certain lines of work, also when the customer has a question, you have to figure out. No, nah, that's not the question. It's, you got another question here. Yeah. Sometimes, and, and the reason is because sometimes you know people either well in this case you know maybe are embarrassed to ask the question, or maybe sometimes on a deeper level or a, on a technical level, people don't know what the question is themselves. You know, like in life, we all have a lot of questions, right? It's, there's a lot of stuff going on inside. Who's an expert to know exactly how we feel? It's complicated, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I do chaplaincy work. I was talking to a father of children's, and I was in his baby was in the bed. I was talking to the father about 20, 25 minutes about, you know, just chit chat. And it was a very nice conversation. And they went to, to leave the room. And the nurse said, how do you really feel? Right. And he started crying. Oh, uh, yeah. And there was you know, a lot of building up about nothing. Right. How do you really feel? Right. Yeah. The, the conversation's over here, but let's talk, yeah. let's talk over here. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's continue. So that's Moses. Sent, honestly, that's essentially Moses' advice, according to Rashi here, with judges. Right. Listen to listen patiently to the claims, even if you've heard a similar case before, because it's not the same. It's a different person. It's a different situation. And judge righteously between a man and his brother who disputes him. Verse 17. Okay, I'm just repeating verse 16, which we just did. Verse 17. Do not show favoritism and appoint judges who are not qualified, who will err in judgment. You should listen with equal interest to a case involving a small amount of money as you do to a case involving a large amount. Right? So don't say, ah, I have no time to judge like a $5 dispute. To somebody, it might be very important. You know what people say when it's about the money. It's not about the money. It's always about the money. <laughs> it's about the principle. Sure. <laughs> no worries. Great to see you. Um, do not fear any man and show him favoritism. For this is as if one has exacted money from God. Who must, be, who must correct and, the judgment and restore the money to its rightful owner. If a case is too difficult for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. Essentially, Moses says, advice for judges, which is really life advice. It's really powerful, each one of these points. Powerful advice. And, um, and if, if it's too difficult for you, bring it to me. By the way, our sages tell us that with that line, anything that you guys can't handle, bring it to me. Which is a little, little, little I'm not I'm not saying this, but our sages say it was a little bit arrogant, a drop, a teensy weensy drop, that caused Moses to forget the law when it came to Tzlafka's daughters, or maybe when it came to Pesach Shani, whatever. One of those cases where Moses said it was like an easy case and Moses forgot the law. Or maybe when it was Pinchas came to him and said, What should we do? Whatever, one of these cases where Moses didn't know and he had to consult, it's because he was a little too confident about his knowledge. No problem, bring it to me. Ah, all right, okay. So there will be some cases where you won't know. Let's continue, verse 18. And on that occasion, I gave you instructions about all the things you should do in a monetary case and in a capital case. All right, let's continue. A few more verses, we'll close it out. Rabbi, verse, yes. Okay, no worries, Ray, great to see you. All right, we're going to close it out. we got three more verses. Verse 19, we journeyed from Chorev, Mount Sinai, and went through that entire great and fearful desert filled with giant snakes and scorpions that you saw toward Amorite mountains as God, our God, commanded us, and we arrived at Kadesh Barnea, which was from where the spies were dispatched. I said to you, you have arrived at the Amorite mountain, which God, our God, is giving us. We're almost here. Look at this. Look. 
Verse 21, God your God has put the land into your hands before you. All you have to do is go and take possession of it. As the Lord, the God of your father has told you, do not be afraid or demoralized. Okay, that is the end. The final message is also beautiful. The message is, right, it is in our hands. The land is in our hands. All we need to do is embark on that journey. And of course, well, we dropped the ball for 40 years, but they're back and better than ever 40 years later, which is where Moses is speaking to them. Not from the same location, Kadesh Barnea, but a little bit northeast of that location in the final approach to the land. Okay, that closes it out for today. So we had, I think we had some pretty decent lessons that we extracted from the reading. Um, number one, when it comes to rebuke, let's do it subtly. We no, don't, no need to demoralize or destroy someone's confidence or, or, or their shatter their self-image. No, no need to like beat up on somebody. The idea is, is reproof to kind of uh, lift them up and to, for correction. If it's, keep, keep the eye on the prize and, and proceed accordingly. We spoke about, just looking through the, the insights that we gave, we spoke about the idea of the translation of Torah into 70 languages. The idea that Torah needs to speak to our speak speak to us today, that we need to bring the light of the Torah into the world, of course, in a kosher way, not in a way when the when the guide when the when we're forced into it, but but in a way of, of our choosing, um, etc. We also spoke about looking here. What else we spoke about? We spoke about Eicha, yeah, Eicha, the idea of not carrying the burden alone, and that's a, a timeless message. We all take responsibility for us and our society. And we spoke about um, judges and listening to people and not listening just to cases. Okay, that is it for today. Ray, it's great to see you. Sarah, it's great to see you guys. Thanks for joining. And we are back tomorrow. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye, guys. Did you just stay with me?